Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. Well, Shabbat Shalom. You be okay in the back? All right. We're in a series uh, on Sefer Daniel, the book of Daniel. Today we're up to chapter 4, so turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, and we'll put it on, on the overhead as well. It's a somewhat long chapter. And it says that I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. Daniel came into my presence, and I told him the dream. I said, Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, I knew that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. I looked. And there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. Uh, the tree grew large and strong, and its branches touched the sky. Uh, under it, wild animals found shelter, and birds uh, lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. I looked, and there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit that the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots, bound with iron and bronze, remain in the ground. Let, it, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven and let him live with the animals. Let his mind be changed from that of a man and be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by him. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets, up and sets over them the lowliest of people. Then Daniel was greatly perplexed and answered, My Lord, if only this dream applied to your enemies, the tree you saw, your majesty, you are the tree. You become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Uh, your dominion extends to the distant parts of the earth. But you'll be driven away from people. Uh, you'll live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox uh, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, renounce your sins by doing what's right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. All that's happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, he said, is this not the great Babylon that I've built as, as the royal residence by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what's decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken away from you. You'll be driven away from people and live with the wild animals. We'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over king, all the kingdoms of the earth. And he, and he gives them to anyone he wishes. Immediately what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people, ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the, the claws of a bird. At the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven, and my sanity was restored. 
that I praise the Most High, and I honor and glorify him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and with the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Amen. Well, in the 6th century B.C., Nebuchadnezzar was the absolute monarch of the kingdom of Babylonia, which at the time ruled the known world. Tom Wolfe, this famous contemporary author in his novel, The Bonfire of the Vanities, uh, coined this phrase, masters of the universe. This is what those Wall Street tycoons uh, called themselves because they made so much money. Uh, and Tom Wolfe, he writes this about one of his protagonists. We'll put it on the overhead. He says, in his heart, he thought of himself as part of that elite little group of people, masters of the universe. By my mighty power, by the glory of my majesty, I've gotten on top of the world. But here, King Nebuchadnezzar, he was a real master of the universe, not just someone who was a Wall Street investment banker who lives on Park Avenue, uh, some penthouse. No, he was the absolute monarch of every part of the known world. Uh, he, and he built perhaps the most incredible city in history. Uh, he built Babylon as his personal residence. Proportionally, compared to the rest of the world at the time, it was larger than New York City. Uh, and it featured the incredible hanging gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world. Uh, Babylon was surrounded by two huge walls, each one wide enough to accommodate multiple horses and chariots. And from the walls hung these beautiful gardens. And yet, although here's someone who's at the pinnacle of power, the kind of power maybe only a dozen people in the history, in the history of the world have ever had, but his life falls apart anyway. And amazingly, when it's done, he's glad that it happened. He praises God for having humbled him because he says, there was a spiritual cancer in me. There was something in me that was so bad, so dangerous, that it poisoned my, and poisoned my soul so deeply that even as drastic as this treatment was, it was worth it to get this cancer out of my soul. Well, what was it? It was his pride. Spiritual pride. And we all struggle with this sin. So this is a very practical text to instruct us. And of course, the first sign that, that you have spiritual pride is that you believe you don't have any. <laughs> it's the sin we're probably most in denial about. Uh, you know, I've had people over the years come to me for all sorts of issues for counseling. Counseling on anger, on depression, uh, on unbelief, uh, addiction, unforgiveness. Uh, lust, uh, marriage issues, uh, child-rearing issues. I've never had anyone ever ask me for help with their pride. <laughs> pride hides in the deepest recesses of our heart. If you go to Barnes & Noble, they'll get all this huge selection, by the biggest selection of the whole bookstore on self-help books, self-help topics. But if you look and look and look, there is none on how to overcome pride or to become more humble. <laughs> but it's a huge issue. Proverbs 16, verse 5 on the overhead says, God detests the proud of heart. Be sure of this. They will not go unpunished. Proverbs 16, 18, pride goes before destruction 
and a haughty spirit before the fall. James 4, verse 6, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The Lord detests pride. Uh, he opposes the proud. He will not endure the proud. Uh, pride is lethal to our relationship with God and to each other. So I want to look at four things today. We'll put on the overhead, four things about pride. Number one, uh, what I'm going to call the sleep of pride. Uh, two, the heart of pride. Three, the outcome of pride. And then finally, four, the healing of pride. So number one, the sleep of pride. King Nebuchadnezzar, he's the one guy in the world you think would not have any worries. Uh, there'd be nothing to disturb his sleep. Uh, here's one guy in the world that just doesn't have to worry about ever getting fired. <laughs> you may say, yeah, but he has always has opposing armies to worry about, doesn't he? What armies? He's the unrivaled military might of the world at this time. No one else at this time has an army like his. Uh, and yet he says this in Daniel 4, verse 5. I had a dream that made me afraid. I was lying in bed, and images and visions passed through my mind that terrified me. In the dream, he saw this tree that reached to the heavens. It was, it was so cosmically, cosmically large that, that everything on the earth was under this tree. Uh, all the creatures of the earth, everything in the world sheltered under this tree. It, it was magnificent. But suddenly, in the dream, a voice from heaven comes and says, Cut down the tree. Uh, strip off its leaves. Scatter its fruit. Let the dew of heaven lie upon the stump for seven times. And what's the purpose of all this? The voice tells us in Daniel 4, verse 17. So that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all the kingdoms of the earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them even the lowliest of people. So Nebuchadnezzar, he calls in Daniel to interpret the dream for him. And Daniel, when he hears the dream, turns white. Uh, he's terrified. And he says this in Daniel 4.22. You, O king, are that tree. And God is coming to humble you. God is coming to cut you down, to show you that you are not the master of the universe. But, he, that, but that you are weak and lowly and live only by his will. Daniel says, God is coming. He's coming to humble you. Look at Daniel 4, verse 27. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what's right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. Repent, humble yourself, and maybe all this stuff won't happen to you. But we're told 12 months later, after which Nebuchadnezzar for 12 months refuses to repent and humble himself, it does happen. We, what we learn here under this first point, no matter how accomplished you are or, or, or think you will be, or no matter how successful you think you are or will be, Contentment and prosperity, the two words Nebuchadnezzar uses to describe himself in verse 1, notice he, he noticed after all this, he still can't sleep. No matter how content or prosperous you think you are or think you will be, it's never enough. It's never complete. Nebuchadnezzar, he's gotten to the very top, and he knows this. Uh, and he knows this, this, this truth about it's never enough. I remember watching this uh, famous movie years ago on the life of this billionaire, Howard Hughes. And it showed that people at the very top are troubled, very deeply troubled people. In fact, we saw this just last month, didn't we, with the trial of Johnny Depp. Those at the top are very troubled. <laughs> and the overhead. People at the top come to learn what the rest of us deny. That the human soul wants something that is so big 
You could pour, pour all the empires of the world into it and you still won't be satisfied. What then is it that we're really after? Only the Nebuchadnezzars of the world really understand this. And that's, that's why they're in despair. Because they can never com be completely content and prosperous. They can't sleep. There's something wrong. There's something missing. What could it be uh, that, that one could pour the entire world into and the Howard Hughes's and the Nebuchadnezzar's and the Johnny Depp's of the world are still deeply troubled? They know what we don't. But the human soul wants something bigger than this world. What can that be on the overhead? They don't know. They didn't know that once 2,000 years ago, there was a little stable that contained something in it bigger than the world. Bigger than the whole world. And that any heart, the simplest, the filthiest, uh, the feeblest, by embracing this truth, can also have in it something larger than the world that totally satisfies. Pride cannot bring untroubled sleep. Success, achievement, a sense of, of, of being master of the universe. You know, we spend our whole lives trying to get to the top. But those who've gotten there still can't sleep on the overhead. And so you need to recognize, but those who, found, who get to the top find out the hard way. You're, you are not in charge. You think you're in charge of your life. Uh, you want to be in charge of your life, but you're not. And the Lord's trying to tell you and to show you that you're not in charge. Uh, uh, and, 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 and you cannot take his place. You cannot usurp his role. So that's number one in the overhead, the sleep of pride. Now number two, the heart of pride. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't listen. Twelve months later, he gets up and he says in Daniel 4, verse 30, Is this not the great Babylon that I built uh, by, my royal, by, my, by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? That is pride. <laughs> now, there's a kind of pride that's actually good. I'll put this on the overhead. Isaac Denison, who's the author of Out of Africa, his famous novel, uh, she writes this. Godly pride is faith in the idea that God had when he made you. The Bible says you're not an accident. God created you. He created you with dignity and purpose. He created you with design. Uh, and when you come to understand that and rejoice in that and be ravished by that, it creates a stability within you. It creates a joy in you. Uh, it creates a confidence in you. Uh, that's the, a good kind of pride. Faith in God's plan for your life. That's the opposite of Nebuchadnezzar's kind of pride. Pride in himself and in the works of his own hands. Spiritual pride looks uh, at your own life and says, I did all these things. I accomplished all this in my life. I did it by my mighty power and for my glory. Life is by me and for me. On the overhead. Worldly pride is that which looks at the good things in your life and says, that was done by me. I did it. I accomplished it. If things go well in your life, you say, that's because I worked harder and smarter than others. You say, that's by me. I did it. Pride looks at life uh, and the good things in your life and says, therefore, I deserve these good things. Pride looks at life with, with a deep sense of entitlement. This is what I'm owed. I'm owed these good things. You know, pride has many forms. Here's how it works when your life's going well. You say, I'm getting these good things. Uh, I'm doing better than others because I'm working better. 
uh, or I'm working smarter, or I'm working harder than, than others, and therefore I'm owed this. Uh, but when your life's going badly, when things aren't working out, uh, what do you do? You look at your life and you say, I'm suffering more than others. This is not fair. Life's not fair. I'm having a harder life than others. Uh, uh, there's no good reason for this. There, I'm owed something better. It's actually the same thing at bottom, a sense of entitlement. I'm owed this, which is driven by pride. Spiritual pride makes you look at life and say, I deserve more than what I'm getting. I should be getting, I should have more than what I have. Uh, I, I'm owed it. Uh, God owes me. And there's many forms of pride. Stubbornness is a form of pride. Look at Proverbs 29, verse 1. One who's often reproved, yet remains stubborn, will suddenly be broken beyond healing. Stubbornness is pride which causes you to shun correction. You only want to defend yourself. When somebody points out an error in your life or a flaw, uh, you evade, you deny, you blame somebody else. And if, you, and if you try to point out their defensiveness, a stubborn person, a prideful person, will not receive it. You cannot correct a stubborn person. Now, on the overhead, we'll put a whole list of different forms of pride. Uh, so we have entitlement, dissatisfaction, jealousy, self-justification, defensiveness, blame-shifting, judgmentalism, another form of pride. Judgmentalism moves you to criticize rather than to serve. Competitiveness is a pride that makes you not just to be smart or wealthy, but smarter and wealthier than anyone around you. Self-centeredness is pride that keeps you at the center of the universe, uh, or where there's only room for one person there, you. Pride is that which claims to be the author, put some on the overhead, pride, uh, yes, is that which claims to be the author of that which is really a gift. Pride makes you look at your life and say, I'm the author of it, when it's really a sheer gift. Uh, in that sense, pride is a form of cosmic plagiarism. You claim to be the author of that which is a sheer gift. Now, the opposite of pride is humility. Humility, in contrast, contrast looks at life as a gift. Humility says, I don't deserve this. If God gave me what I really deserve, I'd be lost. Uh, I'd be judged. Uh, but look at this and this and this. Look at all these great things that I've been blessed with. It's all gravy. It's all an undeserved gift on the overhead. Humility is that which receives life as a gift. Humility says, I don't deserve all these great things in my life, but I thank God for them. Humility is grateful and thankful for all the, the good things, of, uh, good gifts in my life. Uh, my health, my mind, uh, my five senses, I can see, I can hear, things we take for granted, right? Uh, my working limbs, my food and shelter my family, my congregation, my friends, my education, my opportunities, my freedom. Humility sees all these things for what they are, a gift from God. It's all the Lord's mercy and loving kindness and grace. And you're thankful for it every day. And you don't take it for granted. You don't see it as some kind of entitlement. You see everything good in life as a gift from God, absolutely free and undeserved, Unexpected, a wonderful surprise. One, one test of humility is your willingness to serve and be interrupted. No one is too good for the humblest of service. 
uh, on the overhead, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this. God will constantly be crossing our paths and canceling our plans by sending us people with claims and requests. We must be ready to allow ourselves to be interrupted by God. Ask yourself, how am I doing on that one? One of the most unforgettable stories of Yeshua ever told about being interrupted uh, is the story, a famous story you all know, of the two religious leaders on this journey, on their way to do some important ministry, when God crosses their path with an interruption. A fellow Jew, beaten and bloody on the road, needing emergency help. But they have things to do and places to go and people to see. They can't be interrupted. And a Samaritan... Someone from a people group that we Jews despise and look down upon and felt spiritually superior to. It was a Samaritan who loved them enough to stop and show kindness and incur time and expense on behalf of and be his neighbor. And let God interrupt his busy schedule. It was a Samaritan who showed humility and servanthood and sacrificial love. You see, if you only serve when it's convenient for you to do so, you're not a real servant. Real servants do what's needed even when it's inconvenient. So ask yourself, am I available to God at any time he wants? Can he mess up my plans without me becoming resentful? As a servant, you don't get to pick and choose when to serve. Being a servant means to give up your rights over your schedule and allowing God to interrupt your plans. So next time somebody needs help or an opportunity for service arises, ask, ask God to stop and pray and ask the Lord, are you crossing my path? Are you speaking to me with this opportunity? And let me tell you, if you're too busy to be interrupted by God, you're too busy. Now you may ask, well, what's so bad about pride? Nebuchadnezzar looked around, he says this again in Daniel 4.30, isn't this my great Babylon that I've built? Uh, by, for my royal residence, by my mighty power, for the glory of my majesty. Now, Nebuchadnezzar was the greatest military genius of his time. He risked his life every time he went out into battle, and he defeated all his foes. He was not some armchair general who just sat back and pushed buttons. He got in his chariot, and he led his army. He was one of the greatest, also political leaders in history. So what's so bad about him bragging about his actual accomplishments? Here's what's so bad. Let's say Les, where are you, Les? Somewhere, maybe in the, the green room. <laughs> Let's say Les composed this magnificent cantata. What if I stole it and, sent it, and sent to a, sold it to a music publisher and claimed it was mine that I composed this magnificent cantata? Now, Les would probably be very mad, wouldn't he? <laughs> and rightly so. Why? Because I robbed him of his due and wrested control of his art from him. Because the author owns the work. The author has control over his own work. But the scriptures say that because of our pride, we don't want to admit that everything in our life is a gift. We don't want to admit that nothing we have we actually deserve, but that we're dependent on God for everything, every breath. And we don't want to admit this at all, that he's the author, not us, because if we do, if we confess that he's the author uh, and we're totally dependent upon him, then we've lost control. Uh, and, we, and we don't want that. We desperately want to stay in control. 
So we deny how dependent we are on God. Even as believers, we still, even if subconsciously, have this attitude that, that I determine how I'm going to live my life. Uh, I determine what I'll do with my tongue, uh, with my mind, uh, with my time, with my money. And so you're still in charge, not the Lord. And the tendency of the human heart is to say, I'm not dependent on anybody else, not even God. Uh, I've earned what I have. But how much of that is really under your control? You didn't choose your race, your sex. You didn't choose what century you'd be born in. You didn't choose your place of birth uh, or your parents or your ethnicity. You had nothing to do with the fact that you were born here and now and not in 14th century Europe during the Black Plague. Don't you think this impacts about your future and your success? You say, well, I've worked hard. Okay, with what? With the mind that God gave you? Uh, with the brain and the IQ and the temperament and the talents and the abilities that God gave you? With the friendships and the relationships and the connections you had by virtue of when and where you were born and how, where you were raised and the family you had? God gave you all this. You didn't choose your parents. You didn't choose your siblings. You didn't choose any of your early childhood experiences. You didn't choose your ability, your talents, or your body type. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 6. You will not take pride in one man over another. For what differentiates you from anybody else? What do you have that you didn't receive as a gift? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you did not? Not the overhead. Humility is a life which receives and acknowledges everything as a gift. And a self-absorbed, prideful life is that which looks at everything as something I'm entitled to, something I'm owed, something I've earned on my own. So, on the overhead, number one, that was the, the sleep of pride and, and the heart of pride. Let's look at number three, the outcome of pride. The outcome is this, Nebuchadnezzar becomes an animal. Uh, he goes insane. Uh, uh, he thinks he's an animal. He begins to live as an animal for, for seven times, which probably means up to seven years. And it was a lesson. God is showing him that pride defaces your humanity. God, in essence, he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, because you insisted on trying to become more than what I made you, uh, you'll become less than what I made you. Because you aspired to be more than a man, you'll become less than a man. Uh, and through this, the Lord's trying to show Nebuchadnezzar what pride does to you. You know, for example, when your child lies, a good parent knows there's got to be consequences. So you might say, for example, honey, if you grow up to be a liar, you'll have no friends, you'll be isolated, you might end up in jail, your life's going to be a mess. Therefore, since we cannot trust you, since you lied, uh, you're grounded for a week. You can't leave the house, you can't have anybody else come over. Because we can't trust what you say. In the same way, God says to Nebuchadnezzar, I've got to save you from the eternal consequences of what you're doing to yourself. Pride, when you aspire to be, to be more than a man, makes you less than a man. It's turning you into an animal. So I've got to really turn you into an animal in order to show you what's happening to you, what you're doing to yourself. So you may ask, well, how does pride turn you into an animal? Here's three examples. Uh, number one on the overhead. Pride makes you like an animal because you're unable to empathize. 
Now, you could say, well, don't cats and dogs empathize? Well, sometimes a cat might look like it's empathizing, you know, where they snuggle up to your leg. Really, they're just hungry. <laughs> Animals have no imagination, and therefore they have no art or creativity, and therefore no empathy. Animals can't imagine what somebody else is going through. Animals can't weep with those who weep, can't rejoice with those who rejoice. Pride is a cancer that erodes your ability to care about other people. Uh, you're never more human than when you're compassionate. You're never more human than when you can relate to what somebody else is feeling. But pride is a way of justifying to yourself the control that you have over your own life. And, and the way you justify this is to constantly be say, I deserve this, I I'm owed this. It's pride that, for example, makes you enter into a new congregation, and the first thing you do is you look around and you say, are these the kind of people I want to associate with? Are these the kind of people who will enhance my sense of how I want to see myself? Pride makes you only think about, are they weeping with me? Are they rejoicing with me? Pride makes you totally self-absorbed. So much so you don't, even, you don't even notice when others are weeping or hurting or suffering. Pride makes you like an animal, unable to empathize. On the overhead, number two, pride like an animal makes you driven by ego survival instincts. Uh, in Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis writes this on the overhead. He writes, pride makes, uh, makes the heart want to keep away from anything better or stronger or higher than it. Anything that might make it feel small or short, that it, that it doesn't have the right to be the center of the universe that it wishes to be. He's saying it's pride that makes you feel threatened. It's pride that makes you feel unhappy when you feel less attractive or less intelligent than somebody else. You feel threatened. Pride makes you constantly want to compare yourself with other people. Pride makes you rebel against any situation where you might have to admit your weakness or, or vulnerability uh, or that you need help. And we hate that. Uh, we won't admit it. Like a scared animal, we run away from things or from people which threaten our ego. And ironically, it's the pride, it's the proud who hate proud people the most. <laughs> you know, it's, it's the braggarts who hate braggarts the most. You don't want anyone else hogging the limelight because you feel you deserve the limelight. So pride makes you like an animal, driven by ego survival instincts. And then finally, number three on the overhead, pride like an animal makes you incapable of real joy. Animals can be satisfied, uh, but not have real heartfelt joy that transcends your circumstances. Animals can't rejoice in their tribulations. Pride sucks all the real joy out of your life. Because if things go well, you say, well, of course, it's about time. You know, that's, that's what pride does. Uh, it makes you think everything you have is owed to you. I deserve this. If, and if things don't go well, pride makes you bitter. It makes you say, life's unfair. Pride destroys your ability to handle disappointment. It sucks the goodness and joy out of even the good times. So on the overhead, that's number one, the sleep of pride and the heart of pride and the outcome of pride. It makes you like an animal. And finally, number four, the healing of pride. There's only one way to be healed, and Nebuchadnezzar finally finds it. The only way for him to be healed is for God to supernaturally intervene and make a way. There's a great illustration of this in C.S. Lewis's uh, Voyage of the Dawn Treader. 
but a young boy, Eustace. He falls asleep on a treasure hoard of a dragon while thinking greedy, dragonish thoughts. And when he wakes up, he's turned into a dragon. He tries desperately to get the dragon skin off of him by, by pulling it off layer after layer, like, like peeling an onion. But he finds he's still a dragon underneath. And then the Lion King, Aslan, appears and says, I'll have to undress you. So Eustace finally consents to let Aslan do it. And Aslan is a lion. And he takes a giant paw and he rips the Eustace's dragon skin. Eustace screams, I thought it was going to kill me. I thought it would go right through into my heart. And C.S. Lewis, he's depicting here not only the process of, of, of rebirth, but also the process of the healing of pride. What it takes to truly slip off our self-centered baggage, all our self-obsession and self-focus. We cannot change on our own. Our fallen nature will always be self-absorbed, uh, always be ego-driven. You have to let Aslan, you have to let Yeshua undress you. And then the overhead. And to truly heal your pride, you must see two things together. Number one, you have to see you don't deserve anything from God but judgment. You have to see your cosmic plagiarism, that you claim to control your life, when in reality, he's the author, and you owe everything to him. Everything. And number two, yet at the very same time, you must see you are the object of the greatest mercy of God. You must see both of these truths together to be healed. And that's what happens to Nebuchadnezzar. First he confesses, look at Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He's including himself. He says, I've learned well, when bad things happen, uh, or when, when the stroke comes in, it almost seems to go to your heart. You can either rebel in pride and, and say, this disappointment, is, it's so unfair, it's not right, or else you can do what Nebuchadnezzar did and realize, I deserved this. This shows me how fragile, uh, how dependent I am. And Nebuchadnezzar lets the stroke humble him instead of harden him. That's the first thing. And then second, he recognizes that all these things that before he thought were his own by, by right, he now realizes are a gift from God. Uh, his whole attitude changes, and he praises God for restoring his sanity and his kingdom. Daniel 4.36, at the same time, my sanity was restored. My honor and splendor were returned to me. Now he sees it's all a gift. Because the Lord only cut down the tree to the, to the stump. He did not uproot the actual stump. He showed mercy on Nebuchadnezzar. Well, how can he show Nebuchadnezzar mercy? How can he forgive him for all the evil that he's done? Nebuchadnezzar didn't know. But you and I know. Nebuchadnezzar was not the master of the universe. But he took it as if he were. Yeshua was the only one who was the master of the universe. And he let it all go. Look at Isaiah 52, verse 13. It says, my servant will act wisely. He'll be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But they'll be terrified of him. His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. His form marred beyond human likeness. So he'll sprinkle many nations. And kings will shut their mouths because of him. Yeshua came. He was so beaten and gored and, and slashed and gashed and, and pierced. The people who looked upon him in terror because he didn't even look human anymore. Yeshua did that to sprinkle us clean, to take our sins, 
Because in our pride, we try to be more uh, than humans. Uh, we try to act like God. And therefore, Yeshua, to heal us, had to become less than he was. He was marred beyond human likeness so that we could be healed and redeemed. 2 Corinthians 5.21, it's the whole gospel in one verse. God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If you're healed of pride, Daniel tells you what you'll then you'll be like. You look up to heaven like Nebuchadnezzar, and you declare like Nebuchadnezzar, Daniel 4.37, I praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. In that heretical but popular book called uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, there's this assumption that the world is worse than we deserve. But that assumption is false. In fact, that's the exact opposite. People get frustrated because they assume that God owes them a good life. But the truth is, the world is actually better than we deserve. So we weep over pain and trouble and tragedy. But if you're healed of your pride by the gospel uh, and look to the Lord, you say, everything you do, Lord, is a gift. You're able to handle suffering, and your, your, your ability to handle suffering is going to depend on whether you believe this world is worse than you deserve uh, God owes me a better, goes, owes me a gift, a better life. Or this world is better than I really deserve. Everything's a good, a good gift from God. And your outlook will completely depend on what you believe about the gospel. The gospel, centering on the life and crucifixion and resurrection of Yeshua, it's the greatest expression of humility in all of time and space. God is the humblest being in the universe. Yeshua, the divine who became flesh, was the most humble man who ever walked the face of the earth. His kingdom looked nothing like Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. He didn't build a lot of buildings with slave labor with his name inscribed on the bricks, unlike Nebuchadnezzar. His destiny was not a tree of glory. It was a tree of shame. And before that tree, before the cross, there was no room for pride. There was, there was, and there was none in the one who hung there. God is opposed to the proud because it's anti-community and it's anti-servanthood. And it's violation of the very fellowship of the Godhead where Father, Son, and Servant are serving one another in perfect community, in perfect love. Pride is a condition of the heart most fundamentally incompatible with love. Love doesn't boast, we're told. Love isn't proud. Pride feeds my sense of spiritual superiority and destroys love. Pride causes me not even to think about or even to see those who are the most needy or the most poor or the oppressed, the very people Daniel warned Nebuchadnezzar not to ignore. Pride pays attention only to the people who I think can build up my own little Babylon. But God is opposed to the proud. God is opposed to any agenda that violates the humility of the Godhead. God is looking for the humble heart of a beggar who knows he has nothing to offer to God. No merit or performance uh, to lean upon, but rather nothing in your hands you bring. And you fall down at the foot of the tree, at the foot of the cross, in repentance and ashes and begging for mercy. Beggars in Yeshua's day were the loose ends of humanity uh, that, that fringed the streets. The lame, the blind, the lepers, the mentally ill, 
They were the, they were the Lazaruses on the curb, like so much garbage. They were the Mary Magdalene's, these uh, limp dish rags of remorse, uh, wringing the tears from her troubled past, tears used to wash Messiah's feet. They were the people who, who flocked to Yeshua and you hear, the, you hear the Sermon on the Mount, lepers, demoniacs, epileptics. Those were his audience. People who could not come into the temple. People who did not dare to darken the door of a synagogue. The outcasts, the unclean, the untouchables. People who had fallen among thieves, robbed of their health, stripped of their self-worth, beaten down by life, and left at the roadside. They were the poor in spirit. The impoverished to the point of realizing that if they were to get their daily bread, they'd have to beg. And with their tin cup extended to heaven, that's just what they did. Son of David, have mercy on me. Give me this living water. Oh God, be merciful upon me, a sinner. These people had been brought so low, they had nowhere to look but up. Thank you. Hallelujah. When our hands, when your hands are that empty and extended to heaven like Nebuchadnezzar's, finally begging for any crumbs that fall from the master's table, then heaven will extend grace for us to dine with Yeshua and him with us. Scripture says God gives grace to such people, to the lowly, to the humble. The truth is, when the Father begins, begins to craft our character, a crushing must first take place. Because, because the raw material for his art must come from a broken heart. God can only work with a broken and contrite heart. But once the shattering occurs, it's his hand that reaches out into our brokenness to pick up the pieces. And peace, by painstaking peace, he fits them together to form us into the likeness of his son. That's why Yeshua says, if you want to be great, you must be a servant. Matthew 20, verse 26. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That is the law of the kingdom. Greatness in the kingdom is defined by servanthood. It's what we see in the lowliest man who ever lived, Yeshua. And we read about this about him in Philippians 2, verse 8. He humbled himself even to the point of death, even death on the tree. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee should bow and every tongue confess, the Yeshua the Messiah is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's learn from Nebuchadnezzar today. If you humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, he will lift you up. Amen. Let's stand and pray. Hallelujah. The music team, come on up. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Father, let me confess today. We confess today, Lord, that we struggle with pride, spiritual pride. Lord, we confess that we're driven by our obsession, uh, obsession with our ego, with our reputation. Uh, oh, we judge others. We feel spiritually superior to others. Uh, we exalt ourselves. We're obsessed with this incessant self-centeredness. 
and we're defensive and self-justifying and blame shifters and stubborn like an animal. Lord, deliver us from our pride. We repent. Help us to walk in humility and meekness and servanthood. For you oppose the proud, but you give grace to the humble. We confess that our insatiable souls, we want something bigger than this world. And whether we know it or not, that something is you, Yeshua. Only you satisfy the longing of our soul. Help us not to see ourselves as the author of our own lives or to take credit for our own success. Because everything we have is a gift of grace from you, Lord. From you, Yeshua. Our talents, our abilities, our intellect, our circumstances, our connections. It's all a gift from you. So help us, Lord, to have a heart of gratitude, to take the lowliest spot, to serve others self-sacrificially, to willing to have our schedules interrupted, to take the lowliest place at the table. Forgive us for our sense of entitlement, uh, that I'm owed a good life, uh, that I earned it and I deserve it. For we deserve nothing but your judgment, if the truth be told. But you, Yeshua, you take on our judgment and you freely give us your life, and you sprinkle clean water upon us, and you remove our filth and our sins, and you fill us with your spirit. Lord, help us to be poor in spirit, that we may enter your kingdom. Lord, help us to humble ourselves, that you may lift us up. We pray this in your name, Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat shalom.